welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher, so no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, I would like to introduce you to Leo Ehrlichman, who is doing, um, finishing off actually his master's in sociology and is currently also in the public administration. Master of Public Administration. Yeah. And so with his sociology, he was under the supervision of Dr. Victoria Sitzma and Heather Murray. So welcome to Grad Chat again, Leo. Thank you. Now, firstly, Leo has been on this before because when he first started his sociology master's degree, he came on to talk about, you know, what he was intending to do. And of course, now he's finished that. So just to clarify to everyone, why have you know the fact that you're listening? We're still listening both the sociology program and also now the master of public administration. Why are you doing both right now? Yeah, so my research is uh, really a hope for a base for evidence-based policy related to alcohol harms. Uh, so I've I've had a, an interest in public policy for quite some time. So it felt like a natural fit to transition into the Masters of Public Admin here at Queens. Right. Um, while I was finishing up the sociology and emergency medicine is where a lot of my research is housed out of the hospital. So just th- thought it'd be a natural transition to move straight into the Masters of Public Admin where I can finish both at once. Which is uh, great so. because if people don't know, the Master of Public Administration is a 12-month course. And it is more, um, more more considered to be like a professional program. Yeah, exactly. Which allows you to, you know, you've done your research part and now how you can move that um, research into policy, like you said. So, in t- so we're going to talk more right now about your sociology research that you did. And you research youth alcohol in Kingston. That was just a reminder for everybody. So can you give us an overview of the research you completed and, and I guess let's just remind ourselves why you chose this topic. Yeah, so my research is uh, looking at alcohol-related presentations to the hospital. So that's uh, whenever you show up to the emergency department for any reason uh, related to alcohol. So we did a pretty broad scan within the hospital. So we looked at two databases of information. So we looked retrospectively at a four-year timeline of what alcohol looks like in the emergency room. So we looked at anywhere from people showing up with a, with a cut on their hand to just being, as we would call it, you know, alcohol poisoning, so acute alcohol intoxication, just being very severely intoxicated, to some mental health presentations as well related to alcohol. We had a pretty strict uh, exclusionary criteria, so we tried to make this as generalizable as possible on what, what the presentations could look like and not really go into some of the more specific things with more advanced mental health pres- uh, presentations or folks that are with no fixed addresses or sexual assault or intimate partner violence. We really wanted to avoid those topics right? Um, just because of the, the ethics uh, and the, the way you can describe those presentations for how unique they all are. Uh, so we really wanted to avoid that. And we looked at a four-year time frame. We originally were hoping for five, but CHIRP, which is one of the two databases we used, is a is a retrospective database as well. So it is filled in after the fact. It's anybody that comes to the emergency department with an injury uh, fills out a form and then that's uploaded into the hospital afterwards. Okay, right. So quite a lot of information about uh, youth alcohol in Kingston. We looked at nearly 3,000. We looked at well over 3,000 patient files and had nearly 3,000 uh, included within our study when we were done. So It's lucky that all the data is there for you. 
Yeah, and uh, the reason I chose Kingston was I'd, I'd done my undergrad at here and I had left for two and a half years working and alcohol in Kingston has been reported quite heavily as a, an issue in the community. And I wanted to make sure that I could try and contribute some form of information that could be used for better policy to assist students, as well as the city of Kingston and the university uh, and other stakeholders on making better policy. So I guess that comes into who are the youth patients arriving to Kingston Health Centres, emergency departments, and what alcohol-related issues are they being treated for? Yeah, so we have quite a bit of information. So we looked at all youth between the ages of 12 and 24. Oh, 12? Yeah. For alcohol? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Not very many people under the age of, uh, really under the age of 17. But we we looked at uh, that because there was a study that was recently finished in Sherbrooke, Quebec, that also looked at youth kind of presentations. Uh, So we, we looked at that, and that study was affiliated with the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction, which this research project has slightly affiliated with under the Post-Educational Partnership for Alcohol Harms, where I sit this year as one of the student chairs. So uh, that organization did that kind of a study, and we tried to match as much of replication as possible, but also doing a little bit more searching in the the patient charts. We we abstracted about 40 variables per chart, so quite a lot of information when you consider that we had just, again, nearly 3,000 patients involved. And then there were three major presentation categories, right? So the, the acute alcohol intoxication, which is your intoxicated, you come to the hospital, you're just treated for intoxication, nothing else has really happened to you. Then there's the alcohol-related injury component. So you were intoxicated, you were injured in some way, that injury required treatment in the emergency department, and then you were discharged. And then we also had the the third category, which was mental health-related presentations, which are presentations where you weren't injured, uh, you weren't just intoxicated, but you had a mental health complaint. So anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, Mm -hmm. things like that came through. But for the most part, the two presentations that were most prevalent were, it was a near even split between alcohol, acute, acute alcohol intoxication and uh, alcohol-related injuries. And then we subdivided injuries from there. And we also looked at, took a special lens given Kingston's demographic makeup at post-secondary institutions and post-secondary affiliations. So we made a pretty comprehensive tool to try and find students within the study and then also people that we could suspect to be students so uh, a very large breadth of information which is nice so when you say you try to identify students how, how do you know that do they actually put down i'm at st lawrence i'm at queens i'm at rmc how how do you know yeah, so exactly or, or at that. a high school. So exactly that, actually. The hospital doesn't track post-secondary institutions or affiliations, but we created this tool to make us as sound as possible. So things that would give you away as being a student, for example, are you live in residence, right? oh, university right. residence. Good students. point. <laughs> um, Queen Student Health being listed as your health provider. Right. Or RMC Student Health or St. Lawrence Student Health, for example. Generally, only students can access student health. Right. As you know that. And then there are people that say, you know, I attended X university. When you read a bunch of medical charts and you read through all the notes, um, someone telling a medical professional, so either the nurse, the physician at triage or during treatment that they're a student, made it a little bit easier. We also had some identifying tools that we used off uh, publicly available information. So living in the university district within the confounds right. uh, with some confounding variables on top of it could have you suspected to be a student but not confirmed, right? Because the person living it. 139 University Avenue, for the most part, when we know University District's almost entirely student. Right. Um, and that also gives to the, to the demographic makeup, the, the our age demographic, so that youth population is actually declining in Kingston. However, the post-secondary population is 
increasing. Okay. And there are more post-secondary students in Kingston at any given time during the academic year than there are youth aged 12 to 24. So so what what time frame are you looking at and and that's and with that have these presentations changed over that time period have you noticed any changes yeah so we we looked at a a four-year time span as i mentioned so it started in the 2013-14 school year right and then went to the 2016-17 school year we have a, kind of a stub year of 17-18 so we looked at those four years coincidentally one of the benefits of where we where we started is it's actually it coincides with the start of queen's university homecoming so when that policy restarted um, so we looked at a four-year time frame and we saw that presentations are increasing they haven't increased crazy amount, but they are increasing. There's a 1.4% absolute increase in presentations, which amounts to quite a large number of, mm-hmm. uh, of patients coming back. But in. is some of that because the the populations, for instance, at Queensland, I don't know about RMC and St. Lawrence, we've increased the number of students coming to school, like our numbers are higher. So we, we attempted to look at first raw numbers versus okay. before we looked at the post-secondary affiliations, we just looked at the overall populations. Okay. And then we, we tried to do a few things to, to discern. We can't guarantee that the increase is not because of more students, but we looked at the rate-adjusted numbers. So okay. how many students and how many presentations do you have in comparison to how many people were there per thousand? And the rate increases were also increasing. Okay. Um, again, we can't we, we didn't run the, the statistical analysis to see if that was was going on, but just the, the trend appears that way. The, the main thing is that the like aggregate total number of patients coming in has increased in comparison to what it was four years before. And is there a difference? Can you show the difference between male and female? Yeah, we actually can. So that's one of the interesting things that come through. So we have these kind of three presentation categories, but they, they look very different. So male presentations were, were found to be more likely as a result of an injury and the, the way that those injuries looked were at times resembling things like interpersonal violence so males were substantially more likely to be victims of assault they were more likely to have you know fractures and other things and then female presentations uh, were more likely to be affiliated with acute alcohol intoxication but females had a little bit more of a, a balanced skew in their in their presentations as a, a whole and female injuries also looked different than male injuries uh, female injuries were more likely to be things like soft tissue injuries or things that related to accidents, right? So not very serious injuries, but still So they fell over. Potentially, given that there, there's such a large number. But it was pretty interesting to see that kind of difference between the male and the female presentations. Now, one of the drivers of our increase is female injury presentations, more people coming injured. Um, and the, the, the sociology comes in from the, the chart review side of, why would we see that happening? And Queen's has, from the National College Health Assessment, uh, a higher rate of binge drinking on campus and more extreme drinking behaviors in comparison to the comparator groups over the same time period. Right. So we know that the campus culture of alcohol and alcohol is pretty symbolic on this campus. So reasons for this explanation is in Kingston that alcohol consumption might be getting a little bit more extreme in the way that people are physically drinking. Um, so do you have a breakdown? I mean, you know, you said that you've collected the ages. Do you have a breakdown from those who were potentially in their first year, second year, third year, fourth year? And, I'm, and I know I'm talking undergrad here, but then, then again in grad, eight later age groups. 
Yeah, so we were... And was we, it significant from, say, one year to the next? So that's one of the, the interesting commentaries. So we weren't able to figure out what year students were in other than first years. Okay. Just given the way that the Queen's demographic breaks out when we're talking just Oh, because of resis and things. Yeah, mm -hmm. because of residents. So we are able to find residents also given that we know from the first year class over 90% of them are 18 years or younger. Right. Um, so if you have somebody that is 17 or 18 presenting... You know, with Queen's markers, but they're not, they haven't put residence as their address. Right. Right. It's pretty safe to, to assume a 17 year old is going to be in first year. Again, it is an assumption, but that's one of the major features is that uh, we know a lot about the, the first year population and underage drinking amongst that population is pretty substantial. But the, the thing that, you know, I found the most interesting is that, and one of the, one of the most interesting, not the most interesting, is that the transition to year isn't really studied. We know quite a lot in the mm -hmm. literature about the transition between secondary to post-secondary education and how that's right. going to change your drinking behaviors. But we don't really know all that much between the transition from year two to year, you know, year one to year two or year two to year three. Right. And we also don't know a lot about uh, the transitions across, the, you know, coming across the minimum legal drinking age. So we do know a little bit and how that interacts in the post-secondary setting. Uh, so previous research by Callahan shows that injuries go up and presentations go up as you cross the minimum legal drinking age. And that also happened in our right, study. Right. That big bulk number was that 18 and 19 number. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, um, particularly in Kingston, I mean, first years, uh, most of our students aren't from Kingston. Yes, that's So correct. that's that first thing of leaving high school, leaving home. So things um, unfortunately go a bit haywire for a little bit until they get acclimatized a little bit better. Was it showing in the other school, other secondary, post-secondary institutions too? Is it a similar thing? Or is it, once again, hard to tell? So it's hard to tell given how small and how variable the campus populations mm -hmm. are elsewhere. The the, the kind of odd thing about Kingston is, so you have the Royal Military College, which is about 1,100 students. Right. And you have St. Lawrence College that has, during the study, had anywhere from 4,000 to 7,000 students, depending on the year. Okay, right. Um, so their enrollment's kind of variable. I'm not sure why it's that variable, but so that that's one of the things. So Queens was one of the things that we provided some commentary on, mm -hmm. also just because of the ritualized drinking dates. Um, so these right. uh, dates throughout the year uh, seem to be affiliated more with the Queen's University academic calendar. So we saw a lot of presentations during those times. Like homecoming, or yeah. orientation, so we, homecoming. We identified five. So it was orientation week, homecoming, Halloween, the first week back in January, which right. would be in the literature referred to as syllabus week, but the campus culture might call it frost week. Okay. And then St. Patrick's Day. And those were kind of right. the days that stuck out. They were more than, more than double the daily mean. Uh, and they were that for all four years. So right. there were kind of consistent points in the calendar that were focalized. You know, focal points for a lot of people coming to the emergency department in a very short amount of time. Which is interesting. And it's a shame you haven't done the, well, I guess someone is looking at the data from this year. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we did have St. Paddy's Day. And it was around the time of the coronavirus sort of amping up around the world. And um, it'd be interesting to see what happened there even though our students were told to be smart and we know there were still parties that went on yeah and i think that that comes again to that cultural implication so there there's a there there's research out there that shows that 
the deterrence effect of policy needs some buy-in. And, you know, I, I, I'm also in the student government, so we worked pretty hard. So the last two years, I've been running a campaign with the AMS, the undergrad student government, called Save Our Paws to try and encourage right. some better behaviors. Mm -hmm. Things like don't break glass in the street. So we use yes. cute puppies. Uh, I know. I love those little videos and yeah. things. It was so, great. Yeah. So that's our kind of one way, because lacerations are, again, a pretty common injury. Right. So just not cutting your foot on broken glass or your hands or something. And then it's also, you know, furry friends don't want to be want to be able to walk through a yes. five city block area. But there's research that shows that. And uh, we unfortunately weren't able to do that. But that's one of the suggestions for further research is mm -hmm. when policies go from dry, from wet, you know, so alcohol involved to dry policies, often you can see a more extreme swing in the people that are still consuming alcohol right. and how they're going to consume. But... Also, it might have been that, like what they say, when students don't view the pol the, the and, and youth don't view the, the policy or the suggested alternative as legitimate, they're just going to amp up. So I think a lot of those right. people probably just again, and we saw it in the uh, the many interviews on uh, on the news of folks just saying, you know, it's not really affecting me. You know, they're telling me to stay home, but I'm just having fun. Like right. I don't feel sick, and like that's kind of, that's one of those major problems, right? Is that how do you communicate to that group? And they seem to... Yeah, communicate the social awareness that needs to be... Yeah, and it, and it's not this kind of mob mentality, right? That's the another thing that people often think about is that, like, oh, there are these big crowds and they're just one mind. A sociologist, John Eck, actually wrote about student party riots and oh, right, quotations. Right. And it's just groups of small groups of friends who are anticipating, who want to consume, and then consume to some form of risk threshold that they're accepting and that's kind of one of the shame parts is that like mm -hmm. uh it's, a, it's not well it's not shameful but it you know because people in university consume alcohol and we don't and canadians consume a lot of alcohol but it, it it the messaging that we tried to provide was you know stay responsible stay off the street you don't have to have these large gatherings and you know you can see that in real time happening with those gatherings happening anyway so Mm -hmm. It was unfortunate, but... It was unfortunate because I think with this one, I mean, this is a little bit off your topic, but it is part of your topic. With what happens at St. Paddy's Day, it wasn't just Queen's students. It was students from other universities that may couldn't, maybe you weren't allowed to do it over there, but let's go to Queen's because we know they have a good party. So unfortunately, it didn't help the situation. Yeah, and I'm sure it was other youth as well, right? So yes. I'm sure that yes. it was high school youth in the community, exactly. uh, people that have graduated recently... Mm -hmm. um, there, there might have been a lot of other, you know, confounding groups in there. And that's one of the, the things about these kind of ritualized days is St. Patrick's Day isn't unique, right? We saw mm -hmm. also, you know, in Chicago, a city that has notorious St. Patrick's Day celebrations, the governor having to step in and shut down all the bars and right, restaurants. Right, right. And they did that for, for quite some time. They just reopened. Mm -hmm. um, so it's pretty it's pretty crazy on what kind of measures we have to do. But... Uh, that's the, a different side of the public health uh, spectrum of trying to really keep the population safe. Can I ask you, you may not know this uh, this question, but I know in Queen's residences, first-year residents, I know during orientation and frosh, there is no alcohol allowed. And I don't know, I'm not sure how long that policy's been in place, but did that show in your results as well for those first years? Yeah, so... Uh... We, we did look at orientation week, and so the policy started, I believe, in 11-2012, after the coroner's report, after multiple fatalities in Kingston right. uh, and other alcohol issues, related issues in the, in the news. Um, the coroner's report suggested that, but uh, again, as I mentioned before, orientation week is a focal point. Mm -hmm. um, there's quite a lot of presentations of 
after homecoming. There's no other bigger event than orientation week. Uh, it's a lot of people that are transitioning into university and then transitioning in some places. And this is one of the things of you know, further research needs to be done about transitioning from year one to year two and moving into a house by themselves, right. having this whole new transition at university. I don't know if dry orientation week necessarily works. You know, I'm not an expert on it. It is considered a best practice to have dry orientation week. But what we're seeing is that students are going and youth are going to the hospital for alcohol right. during that time. So, uh, they're not, see, so they're dry during in residence, but it doesn't mean to stop them from doing it outside of residence. Yeah, we see that in the news, right? You mm -hmm. see it recently, these street parties on University Avenue that are growing, you know, what appears to be year over year um, with more and more students seeking it elsewhere. And that's, again, Kelly in her literature says, like, when you look at this, if students don't view the policy as legitimate, they'll go somewhere else. And, you know, it'll, it'll mm -hmm. keep the folks that don't want to drink at home, but the people that want to drink are going to go elsewhere to find it and they might become more extreme in it um, because there's a lot of you know when you come to campus and when you're when you're drinking there's this kind of learning process that occurs you know you use symbolic interactions as a sociolog a sociological theories uh, behind it right so individuals are learning together on what mm -hmm. alcohol does to themselves physically so getting actually intoxicated some people have not consumed that much alcohol before been extremely intoxicated but also what's the accepted threshold within their group right so i guess this this actually then leads very nicely i think onto the fact that you're doing a master of public administration yeah. which is all about policy and things like that so with knowing what you know from your master's study in sociology what are you hoping to do on the policy side of things to i don't know change people's perceptions change parents perceptions students perceptions the administrators etc to have a better way of keeping people out of our emergency places and in the hospitals and and just basically looking after themselves better yeah, so one of the things that I wrote in there in my thesis was uh, the conversation about programming. And particularly when we look at orientation week and homecoming, those are, are, are real important parts. Um, again, we have a lot of programming in Kingston related to first-year students transitioning into university. Mm -hmm. That's really the bulk of our orientation week program. It's an excellent run, excellently run orientation week. It's yeah. run by students in collaboration with the university. Uh, it's really a student-led movement. However, we don't really have programming for the second, third, and fourth year students. Right. We don't really know what that transition looks like, but we know the harm is around that 19-year-old year, right. um, where most second-year students live and, and have that age, right? So when we look at orientation week, our mean age was about 19.6. You know, it's not really that first-year age demographic. So that's an important thing to think about, about having programming outside of the fact. Because when we talk about these ritualized drinking days, I haven't mentioned it as much, um, there's 17 days out of the year that make up over one quarter of emergency room. Is that right? Yeah. So homecoming, uh, orientation week, those five events make up over you know, 26% of the visits that we had. Right. right? A substantial amount of the mm -hmm. ambulances. Right. So the really resource intensive stuff. Right. Again, over a quarter of the ambulances. During the academic year, it's a third of the ambulances. It's a lot of ambulances, a lot of people coming in in a very short time period. And then homecoming is another one. So Queens brought homecoming back in 2013, and the presentations have increased rapidly. There are more and more people going to the emergency department with alcohol-related issues, and homecoming is one of those planned things. So Queens moved homecoming after quite a bit of issues related to it. So we had you know, the news of somebody slapping a police horse. We had previously mm -hmm. in 2008 the, the 
the cars being flipped and all the other things and these large street parties that were. And when the, the principal at the time, Tom William, canceled homecoming, yeah. mm-hmm. were, were a pretty big issue. But moving it into October, I don't think worked. Um, this p- perception that the colder weather would prevent students from, from consuming alcohol. Can I ask, though, with, okay, with homecoming, because yeah. there's other people involved in homecoming. There's all the alum coming back. Yeah. From first year alum to those who are 50, 60 mm-hmm. odd, odd, was that showing up in your results? The other, I mean, I know you've got a certain age group, but so some if, of that could be alum. If they left that age group, so if they were outside mm-hmm. of twenty four, they weren't included. Right, I don't know. 24. I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that many folks were were coming in that were necessary alumni. Right. But I think it that might be a part of. One of the reasons why homecoming has such cultural significance about alcohol consumption is that people are coming back. Homecoming is a celebration. Yes. Right. However, it's a planned celebration around a football game, and we saw it in Western at London in London that the students have this revolting. You know, they they move the homecoming like Queens to be in October, but now they have two. Right. They have right. their foe coming when it used to be in September. Yeah. They party again in October. I mean, it comes back to this like formation of policy, and it not. If it's not viewed as legitimate, that students might become a little bit more extreme in their behavior has been mm-hmm. shown in a little bit of research and more research needs to be conducted on this like perception of it because there's a lot of belief that we can make this kind of policy in the post-secondary environment, in the youth environment, uh, and people will just buy in. Mm-hmm. But when we get a lot of youth together and different groups together, and particularly in the university environment when individuals are independent and they have the ability to legally go buy alcohol themselves or go to a bar, right? It's pretty hard to say you... We're moving this or you're not going to drink. Like, those are some of the, the, the challenges, I think, policy-wise that are coming forward. It's a, huge, it's a huge challenge because we can do all the programming in the world and at the end of the day, if the student's not going to listen and make it judge, make their own judgment of what's right or wrong. When we saw that in St. Paddy's Day where people were told, you know, don't go, don't be in big groups, and yet they were still there and they, and they knew about all the warnings, mm-hmm. but they still turned up. Yeah, and that's one of the, the kind of upsetting features is that, like, how do you how do you solve this issue? Mm-hmm. And I think more research needs to be done sociologically and in other forms of research, maybe psychologically, on how do you how do you make these policies kind of fit? And I think some of the, the things that need to come forward need to be addressing these, these challenges because we're seeing it only increase. And you see it in the mm-hmm. United States and you see it all over the place where yeah. we have these large student events and, you know, ex-paper, but student party rights in 2006. Right. right. So it's not like this is a new thing that no, we know it's not what's going new. on. And collegiate drinking isn't a new thing, right? No. We have Animal House, that was a movie from, you know, yeah. Right. So, like, it, it's not really something that's unique. But the, the bigger question is the, this underage and just crossing the legal drinking age threshold and this peak harm. Because I'm not, my research isn't concerned about people just drinking. My research is concerned about people getting to the, to the, the, the hospital because they're so intoxicated. Right. Right. Um, because that's an extreme form and that's a real downstream harm. Uh, there's a whole gray figure of harm, which is, you know, all the things that can happen to you while you're intoxicated. Mm-hmm. But getting so intoxicated that you're at the hospital is something that's really concerning to me and that I hope to in some way be able to contribute to reducing because that's that's the real concern. Can I ask, I know you mentioned Sherbrooke had done a, a, yeah. a study. It would be good if other universities did similar studies because we are a residential yeah. university. So I'm sure what potentially happens here is exacerbated because of that they're not living at home Mm -hmm. with mum and dad keeping an eye on them even though there's always ways to get around that i would imagine Mm -hmm. Um, because i know but it'll be interesting to see other universities both residential and 
non-residential predominantly yeah and that's to something... see what they do like the ones in toronto i mean they're always commuting yeah so that's something that we've also called for so we we now have cpads a canadian drug an alcohol right. survey for post-secondary alcohol and drug survey. So that'll provide a, like a wealth of information. But I do definitely think we need more of these in-depth numbers. Right? Mm-hmm. Sherbeck had about 850 patients over a four-year time period. Right. We need 2,479. A, a lot more people are coming into the, the emergency department in Kingston. Right. So it, it, it is, it's a concern. And, it, and it's a concern that one quarter of them come on five, these five days. So the behavior probably aligns. And when we look at blood alcohol scores, so you know the, the numbers... They more align with what literature is now being pointed to is for more research is high intensity drinking, where they're drinking two or three times because they're so intoxicated from their right. blood alcohol content. And this was found in Sherbrooke too, that they're probably drinking twelve or fifteen drinks, not four or five, which mm-hmm. is considered the binge drinking threshold, right? And that also needs to be happened. That that ter- terminology and the way that we view high risk drinking is is also an important thing to think about mm-hmm. not understanding standard drinks there are a lot of there are a lot of questions that i think we still have right even though research has gotten so good at identifying right we know exactly what a standard drink is supposed to do to the average person if you have this many and this many hours but when you survey people do they actually know what a standard drink is the general answer is no good point right it, it i mean it's almost like when you're talking about policy one place where you could have a another policy for instance the lcbo in ontario I know you can't buy alcohol unless you're a certain age and you have to show your ID, but maybe there needs to, if you're under a certain age, say under 24 or whatever, there's only a certain amount that you can buy at one time. I mean, I know that's only a sort of a patch patch thing, but maybe that's the way to go where they can't actually get as much. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's about limiting. I think it's a lot of it is understanding how much you're consuming, and then it's the well, education. Well, that's true. Because it's the, it is the education. We've got to inter- educate the individual. You know, we have a Canada food guide, but we don't have anything that teaches you about alcohol. But the average mm-hmm. age of drinking on sits 13 and a half in Ontario, in Canada, right? So knowing what a standard drink is and having it on the label, you know, instead of saying 333 ounces, yeah. sorry, a milliliters of 5% alcohol. Well, what what does you, that mean? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. This is one standard drink. Right. Right. How many drinks have you had today? Because we asked that in the survey, right? Mm-hmm. We, we asked people how much are they drinking. Right. And there was more research that was done on the other side that said the amount that we say we're drinking versus the reported amount that we've purchased are not the same. Right. We, we purchase much more than we say because uh, we also know this. The drink is what you have percent. It's what you have in your hand. Yeah, that's one right. drink. Regardless, you know, it could you, be two standard. If you pour spirits into a red solo cup, like mm-hmm. you're not measuring at one and a half ounces every no. time, or you might not even know that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, the the big issues that's also been found in literature is how do we get people to know that? And I don't know if the big brewers and the big liquor companies are going to want to be putting this bottle list. This many standard drinks. Well, the cigarette companies had to do special warnings, so yeah. there's no reason why, why and they alcohol, couldn't. And alcohol is extremely expensive to the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is substantially more expensive than right. all the other things that we have that are substances that are illicit. Um, and that was found in the Canadian Cost of Substance Use Harm Survey, that research that was recently done in 2018. All right, so we know alcohol is really expensive to the taxpayer, and it's mm-hmm. really expensive you know, socially and criminal justice costs and lost productivity. So again, I'm not I'm not trying to be a teetotaler here and say don't drink. I'm saying if you're going to consume alcohol, that's fine. But we have to try and avoid these extreme points of harm. Yes. Because my research is, you know, was found on the provincial scale. They, there was a study that looked at discharge diagnoses. And alcohol is, has increased in Ontario emergency rooms from 2003 to 2017, right? A substantially larger thing, you know, our mini regional finding of an increase right. is backed up even further. And again, young females were an identified population concern, and then older males in that population, right, right. 40, 45 to 54, you know, people with like real health complications. So 
there has to be a way of reducing those like actual harms while people mm-hmm. are having fun because yeah so it, it's so between that, policy and education we've still got a lot of work to do yeah i think it's not i think this is the start and the conversation that we have and it's an ever-evolving conversation mm-hmm. needs to continue because you know a lot of it is underage folks and how do we you know and the transitioning folks how do that are going from 18 to 19 and becoming of age and we know the harm goes down you know you cross that middle legal age drinking age threshold and it's like a, like a ski hill you know you go right back down and it kind of right. flattens out and other research has shown similar kind of things so how do we get that middle group that middle group the first a- away from to be it. honest the first and second years and, but it's also just you know the average student you know they may hmm. not be in post-secondary studies but right. like the youth that's 18 yes. 19 years old that wants to get really intoxicated right and i think there's a change in terminology right binge drinking i don't know how effective it is or if it's been evaluated that people value the term as much and youth like think of it as a bad thing right because i think that's some of the things that need to come forward is how do you change that perception in peer behavior Lots to think about. And luckily, you're in the right area to try and make a difference there. So thank you very much, Leo. We are going to have to call it quits. But I know this is going to create a lot of discussion and um, not just today, but moving forward as well. So I really appreciate you coming on, talking about what you've been doing and what you're hoping to do in the future with your um, public administration as well. So thank Thank you. you. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 